Hey there. Thanks for joining us at Risen King Church for our weekly podcast. We hope you experience God today. Make sure you visit us at risenking.life to take all your next steps and follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. Enjoy the message. Good morning, everyone. I've done uh, lots of weddings over my years as a minister, and one of the themes of the book of Jeremiah that we're looking through at is the idea of bride and bridegroom, and, and every single wedding I've ever done, the bride was looking for one, one assessment, and the assessment was, was always this, do I look perfect? Not just beautiful, but uh, perfect. I want to be perfect. And so what you begin to realize, though, is no bride is, achieves perfection without whole lots of correction. You know, so the hair gets corrected. I have seen more makeup on that day than that woman wears the rest of her life. The dress, the supporting garments, everything doubles, triples the weight of that person. I mean, it, it, there's, just, there's just something about uh, a bride when they come up to the altar to be married, that they, I have yet to see one who was not perfect. But the perfection took work. It wasn't just, they didn't just wake up with it. Uh, so much had to happen. So thinking about that, as we look at this passage together, what Jesus is speaking through Jeremiah to the bride is there is no perfection without correction. And unless you're able to hear the correction and make the corrective measures, you will not ever realize the fullness of your destiny. So this is a, this is a lengthy passage. I like it when you read it all out loud together with me. If you need to have a little nap in Jesus during that time, uh, like some of you do anyway. Uh, so we'll, we'll, we'll read this together. It's kind of long, but let's, let's do this and read God's Word together. The Lord said to me in the days of King Josiah, Have you seen what she did, that faithless one, Israel? How she went up on every high hill and under every green tree, and there played the whore? And I thought, after she has done all this, she will return to me. But she did not return, and her treacherous sister Judah saw it. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. Yet her treacherous sister, Judah, did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. Yet for all this, her treacherous sister, Judah, did not return to me with her whole heart. But in pretense, declares the Lord. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah, and proclaimed these words toward the north, and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord, your God, 
and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless children, declares the Lord, for I am your master. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion, and I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you in knowledge and understanding. And when you have multiplied and been fruitful in the land, in those days, declares the Lord, they shall no more say, the ark of the covenant of the Lord. It shall not come to mind or be remembered or missed. It shall not be made again. At that time, Jerusalem shall be called the throne of the Lord, and all nations shall gather to it, to the presence of the Lord in Jerusalem, and they shall no more stubbornly follow their own evil heart. Pretty powerful passage. So let's unpack this a little bit. So one way that you could look at this is that here's a tale of two sisters. The Lord refers to the northern kingdom of Israel as one sister. Then he refers to the southern kingdom of Judah as another sister. Now, what you might remember is is that there were 12 tribes. They united into one kingdom, which was called Israel under David. It separated after Solomon. So the 10 tribes went to the north, called that Israel. And then two tribes went to the south, Judah and Benjamin. And eventually it just was called Judah. And as a matter of fact, Judah is so significant because all of the Judahites, became later who we would call the Jewish people. And so the, the focus and the intensity of God's words are really towards Judah. Because through Judah would come the Savior. And he was preserving Judah. He was preserving Jerusalem. He was preserving his presence among his people because not only would they be saved through Jesus, but the whole world would be saved through Jesus. And so these two, two sisters are, are spoken to by God, and he's speaking to them as a husband speaks to his wife. And he calls Israel first, uh, he calls her faithless. And in the Hebrew, what this is, is a, a very uh, accurate description of a person who is easily deceived. In other words, there's a, there's a naivete, there's, a, there's a, a, a lack of wisdom, so that, so that when someone comes and seduces, you are easily seduced. And so Israel was not, in a sense, going out looking for trouble. Trouble came looking for Israel. And Israel did not have the ability to resist temptation. They did not have the, the strength or the character to recognize the deception that they were under. Now, this is why deception is such a powerful tool of Satan. Because a person who is deceived doesn't know that they are deceived. And so it's very hard to get them out of that deception because they don't see it as guilt. They don't see it as shame. They don't see it as something they're doing wrong. It's something they believe is the truth when in fact it's a bondage and a lie. The other thing is this. Even in our day, Many of us, we could see ourselves as we are like faithless Israel. We're not trying to sin, or we're not going out scheming to sin, but sin seems to be able to find us. 
And we are uh, very easily tempted by the tempter. Now, one of the things that you have to realize is Satan has been following your family since the beginning. So he knows exactly what works on your family. It worked on your parents. It worked on their parents. And so he says, why come up with a new plan when this plan works so well? And so in some ways, the enemy will not stop what he's doing till you stop it. And when you choose not to stop it, you become faithless Israel. But then he says, you know, Judah, you're not, you're not faithless, you're treacherous. And, and some of the translations call Judah unfaithful, but this idea of treacherous is even more descriptive of what God says in Hebrew here. See, what she does is she plays religious. She pretends. She has a pretense or a veneer of religion. She has Jerusalem. She has the temple. She has sacrifices. And so she says, I'm fine. God will never let Jerusalem fall. God will never let the temple fall. So I will continue my religious holy appearance, but I'm in bed with every other God. And that's what God is saying here. I mean, I, you know, I hardly ever say whore in my normal life. <laughs> but today, reading the Scriptures, we said it over and over and over again. It was fun. <laughs> does he say it just to provoke? Maybe. But does he say it because he has a broken heart? Yes. Because the one he loves is pretending. The one he loves has more interest in appearance than heart. And because he doesn't have her heart, he knows someone else has her heart. And so he says, you spread your legs at every high place. You spread your legs at every fertile tree, every green tree. And the heart of God is broken over his beloved. Now, some people, when you talk about repentance, they have a lot of difficulty with repentance. Part of it is because they feel like God is a killjoy, and he's just trying to take away your pleasure. He's just trying to take away your fun. So what a lot of people do with repentance is basically they don't repent unless they get caught. But repenting because you're caught is not repentance. It's remorse. It's regret. It's, I'm sorry I got caught, or I'm sorry I hurt you. Don't you love it when someone says to you, I'm sorry if I hurt you? I'm like, I'm sorry that I just hit you. <laughs> because if you're saying I'm sorry if, then you're not really sorry. You're giving me a sorry, sorry. <laughs> See, repentance is when you realize this doesn't work. Repentance is you realize this is a lie. This is not my power source. This is not my success source. This is not my source of identity. And you turn from that and return to the Lord. He doesn't call it repentance unless you have returned. You see, it's God's view of your soul that you have two empty, aching arms. And if those empty, aching arms are filled with idolatry, you have to put down the idols to turn those empty arms to God's open arms. He's not looking for a religious action. He's looking for a relationship action. 
Are you hearing me? But I have never found people who are caught who actually turn. What I often see is this story I heard of this little girl who was coming to church in the minivan and stood up in the minivan and the dad said, sit down. She said, no. He had to pull over. I don't know if any of you ever said this to your kids, but my dad used to say, if I ever have to pull this car over. <laughs> Nuclear. Uh, so he pulls the car over, puts the kid in the, the seat, straps the kid in, drives to church, and the child says, Daddy, I might be sitting down on the outside, but I am standing up on the inside. <laughs> That's what many of us are doing. We're sitting down, pretending we're strapped in, but we're really standing up on the inside. And to think in a way that we fool God, He calls that treachery. And He says, even faithless Israel, who's deceived, is more righteous than treacherous Judah who is looking for a way to satisfy and comfort herself and give herself security by being in bed with other gods. So, it begs the question then, how do you make yourself feel good about yourself? Because the way Judah was doing it in their treachery is Judah was saying, we will be religious on the outside, but we will pursue life from these other, these idols, from these other gods. And Israel was saying, we don't, you know, we just don't know how to do anything but be deceived and seduced. So it goes to this issue that every one of us wants to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. So the question I'm asking you today is, how do you make yourself feel good about yourself? And, and what I mean by that is really these issues of how do you make yourself feel comfortable? How do you make yourself feel safe? How do you make yourself feel like you have meaning or purpose or that you matter? So if there is, as there in our society, there is no God. God is dead. God does not exist. So therefore, we still have to make ourselves feel good about ourselves. And so what do we turn to? Well, the number one thing has to do with relationships still. Romance, sex, love, even marriage can be a way that, I, that those of us who do not know God begin to say, I feel good about myself because I'm married to this person. Or I feel good about myself because I'm attractive and these people are attracted to me. Or I feel good about myself because I'm lost in romance and love. Now, in that, you begin to see a clue of how God created you, and in that, you begin to see a clue of how you actually find meaning in life and how you really do make yourself feel good about yourself. But what you're looking for is an ultimate love, not a temporary love. Now, all you have to do is listen to music, and you will hear people who do not believe in God and who are not talking about God but who have made gods of the people they love. Now, look, if you don't believe in God, then basically you believe you're an accident. You're a random collocation of atoms that has come together to be you. You have no meaning, you have no purpose, and this is it. This is all there is. But strangely enough, when you find another, suddenly life has meaning. You know, I might be just an accident, but since I found you, you know, there's just meaning to me. Now, I know that's not a great pop song. I'm a co-location of random atoms that have come together, but since I found you, baby, 
That one will never hit the charts. <laughs> but you see, under that and in that is a clue. You see, here in chapter 2 of Jeremiah, then again in chapter 3, how does God call to us? He doesn't say servants. He doesn't say he's the master. He says, I'm the husband. You're the bride. I'm the bridegroom. You're the bride. And, and truthfully, if you really want to understand God's heart and you look at all the Scripture, this is everywhere in the Scriptures. I mean, think about it. The cataclysmic events that brought into into being our world, mountains moving, rivers running, oceans coming into being, land masses forming, all of that amazing movement of matter. And what's the climax of the whole thing? A man meets a woman. And a woman meets a man. That's, God's done all this stuff that we would call huge and amazing, cataclysmic, and he says, well, what really matters is the wedding of the man to the woman and the woman to the man. So all of history begins with a wedding. Hmm, a little bit of clue there. Genesis is probably saying there's more here than meets the eye. But then when we get to Moses giving the law, and when Moses starts to speak to the people, he doesn't say to them, you've broken God's rules. He said to them, you have cheated on God. Well, when you say someone has cheated on you, you're not saying that they you know, had a phone call or, or that they looked at somebody. You're saying they had sex with somebody else. They have, been, they, have, they have misconduct sexually. God doesn't say you broke the rules. He says you broke my heart. You broke our covenant. Well, not just Moses, but the prophets. I mean, one of the greatest books for me is the book of Hosea. Because he began, he's dealing with a people that he says, basically, you've turned into prostitutes and you've left your husband. But then he says, but I will allure you. I have betrothed myself to you forever, he says. <laughs> wow. You will call me husband. Not master, Hosea speaks for God. Isaiah says, for your maker is your husband. And then he says, as the bridegroom rejoices over his bride. That's the way Jesus looks at us. I, I've done hundreds of weddings. I've yet to have a groom go, man, this is disappointing. That's not what I expected. I have seen huge men fall in tears. <laughs> I mean, they go, oh, I do, you know, like little girls crying there, you know, and this huge guy with suddenly a high-pitched voice, and it's because of the beauty of the woman coming towards him, he is rejoicing, he's like, I know I'm not worthy of this, guy, of this woman, I've never seen it the other way, even when they don't say anything, their eyes are dancing, this is the person I get to live with for the rest of my life. This is what Jesus says about you. This is the way Jesus looks at you. You're the bride. The bridegroom is not disappointed. But here's what you have to get. He is saying he doesn't want a mediator between you and him. See, religion by nature is mediation. It is somebody else telling you how to relate to God. It's somebody else telling you how to have romance with God or not have romance with God. 
And all of the scriptures from Genesis all the way to Revelation says God has never wanted any mediator between you and him. He wants to be the husband and you be the wife. He wants you to be the spouse. Look at how history ends in Revelation. It ends in a wedding. And the picture is that we who are the bride of Christ are spotless and radiant and, and, and perfect. And the bridegroom welcomes us and the supper, the marriage supper, the lamb will be what every good taste you have ever had, only a, a dent, dim hint of what that taste is going to be. When you look into his eyes, you're not going to go, Jesus, you have some splaining to do. You're going to go, that's what I lived for and everything I lost was worth this. Are you tracking with me? So you have to understand, it has never been about religion. It's never been about a mediation. No church can mediate for you. No priest can mediate for you. No other person can. It has to be you, the bride, him, the husband. You, the spouse, him, the spouse. There is no other relationship by which you can have an intimacy with God. This has always been His purpose. But as you find this and you actually understand this, what God is saying throughout this, this, this prophetic word from Jeremiah is that He wants you to understand that when you get His view of us, you get meaning. You matter. You have significance. You see, he's basically saying, I don't want subjects. I want a spouse. I don't want dutiful service. I want intimate love. Nothing else will do. You see, you can keep the rules and hide your heart. But he doesn't want you to keep the rules. He calls that treachery when you keep the rules but hide your heart. He wants the heart. So what we're really seeing in Jeremiah is God is the ultimate romantic. He will settle for nothing less than the romance of your heart. Why would He say to a wicked people, I will allure you. I will betroth myself to you forever. He's not looking for servants. He's looking for lovers. And He made you so radically relational that you are only satisfied in Him. But the thing is, because we're so radically relational, we try to be satisfied in all kinds of other things. So, in my experience, as I've talked and counseled with people who were, who were wealthy or they were famous or whatever it is, they have more opportunities for romantic alliances, they have more opportunities for sexual encounters, all kinds of things than the average person. But everyone I've ever talked to told me it was empty. Whatever they had, they wanted another. And so I was listening. I was in my car listening to uh, one of my favorite singers, Neil Young. And I have this compilation that goes from the 60s all the way to the present. And I started to notice him. I mean, the guy's very famous. He's very, you know, very prolific. And, and he's had albums all the time. And I'm listening, and every album he's saying, if I just had this type of woman, I'd be happy for the rest of my life. Until the next album where he said, if I had another type of woman, I'd be happy for the rest of my life. And every album has a new kind of woman with which will make him happy for the rest of his life. And so what you realize is he had the woman he said in that album, 
She didn't satisfy him, so now he's got another one, and then he gets another one and another one until I found out that you know the one that he was partnered with, he dumped because he could have a famous actress. So here's a guy who's saying, I, if I just had this, I'll be happy. But he has it, and he goes, well, since I have it, now I don't want it. Which sort of reminds me a little bit of when I was a kid. Any of you, I, I'm old, and I remember when there was only one day with cartoons. Saturday morning, which was really not about cartoons, but giving kids lust for toys they did not have. So we would go, Mom, if I just had that. You know, and of course, my mom would save up all money for like a year or so just to get me that one toy that I said I just have to have. And as soon as I had it, I played with it for five minutes, put it aside, and, fa- and got the boxes and made tents out of them. <laughs> the boxes ended up being more interesting than the actual toy that cost all the money. In some ways, we are people who keep thinking, if I just have that. If I could just have this job, if I could just have that relationship, if I could just be married, whatever it is, it begins to weigh on us. You see, if you don't realize how significant you are to God, and if you don't know what he knows about you, about how much he wants this intimate, immediate relationship with you, then what happens is sex and romance and marriage, they become ultimate. They become the thing, if I just have that. And then God can be, stay in your life for you because he's the means to getting your ends. Oh, God, please, let me have this job. Oh, God, let me have that house. Oh, God, if I could just have kids. Oh, God, if I could just have a spouse. Please, please, I will be happy. I'll never ask anything else of you. And so what we've done is we've actually loaded temporary things with eternal significance. And they can't bear the weight of that. Now, I want to, are, you, are you hearing me? Because, again, I'm saying to you, what many of us do is we have a veneer of religion. But our real life is sex, romance, love, success, other these things, all these other things. And God's supposed to protect those things and provide those things so that he becomes a means to the end and prayer becomes a means to the end. And instead of it being really faithfulness, it's treachery. It's not idolatry only, it's adultery. And so here's a secular guy, brilliant guy, one of the best books I've ever read on this. He says, when you get rid of God, this is what happens. One of the first ways that occurred to to the modern person was the romantic solution. The self-glorification that we need in our innermost being, we now look for in the love partner. What is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to this position? We want to be rid of our faults. We want to be rid of our feeling of nothingness. We want to be justified. We want to know that our existence hasn't been in vain. We want redemption, nothing less. We want them to make us good and real through their love. Needless to say, human beings can't give you that. No human relationship can bear the burden of godhood. I mean, realize when you make someone ultimate, it's usually because of something. So you are my everything because you're beautiful. What happens when they aren't beautiful anymore? You are my everything because you're successful and your money. What happens when they lose their money? Or what happens when they no longer want me? 
because they have enough money to have somebody else. You understand, any time that I make something a God, then it has to save me. And God is the ultimate, God is the ultimate teacher, friends. He will allow you to discover what you won't realize on your own. So he says to you, you're trusting in this to make you comfortable, successful, safe. So then when trouble comes, call on your lover gods, he says. See if they can save you. Because he wants you to know they can't. They can't. And so what is being said here is not that human love is wrong or that it's bad in any way, but it's not ultimate. So the fact that you have people that love you, you have a good spouse or you have good friends or you have a good job or whatever it is, you have to look through that, not to that. you got to look straight through that and say, if that is in my life, it's because there is an ultimate love and an ultimate lover who this is pointing to. Because it's not enough to be connected to this, I have to be connected to him. I don't know if I can explain that better than I just did right now. I'm getting tired, actually. <laughs> Are you tracking with me on this? So you see, this is why any kind of religious expression is never enough. Even those who say, you know, I am, I'm devout. Well, the devout person basically says God has instituted customs and guidelines. So I've got to keep these and I can measure them by how well I perform them. Okay, and then there are other people who will say to you, I'm not religious, but I'm spiritual. And so their idea is basically, if you boil it down, maybe simplistic, but I'm seeking a sense of oneness with myself and the universe. You see, neither of those is enough. Neither of those is enough. God's not basically a scorekeeper, and he's not an it. He's not a thing. He's not a force. He's a person. And so what the Bible says and how God reveals himself is he's offering always so much more. He says, I want to be your spouse. Not some abstract construct. Not some some scorekeeper of your obedience. I want monogamy. I want exclusivity. You see... When there is a person who empowers you and who gives you freedom and who gives you love and isn't oppressive like a master in your life, then belonging to them gives you meaning. Belonging to someone who is your owner, who is your your oppressor, your dictator, that is just destructive. But what God is saying, and, and this is so powerful, he's made himself so vulnerable. That he is offering to you what a good spouse would offer to their spouse. But he's saying, you belong to me and I belong to you. And even though that's gotten screwed up in our world and it's caused abuse and different things that have gone on, there is something in all of our hearts that are only secure when you say, I belong. I mean, one of the greatest things, I overhear Lisa sometimes in, in conversation, she'll say, that's my husband. And because I know her and I value her, that she says, I'm her husband, means I belong. That's a deep sense of meaning for me. Sometimes some of you will come up 
and you'll say, introduce me, and you'll say, this is my pastor. And I'll go, oh, that makes me feel so good. <laughs> you understand the idea of belonging, not in an unhealthy way, not like you have rights over me and demands over me, but that you have relationship with me. You have, you have this claim to me that doesn't make me inferior, but makes me sore. That's what God's asking. That's what he's offering. Is that your sense of belonging would be found in him. But see here in chapter 3, God gets really vivid that they have not taken him up on the offer. What's happened is they have, they have gone for Canaanite deities. Now in Israel, in the north, the way the Assyrians destroyed the power of the, of the ten tribes is this. They took all the intelligentsia. They took all the governing people, all the educators, all the artists. They took all the lawyers. They took everybody who had power, who had understanding of ruling and governing, and they took them to Assyria and got them all out of Israel. And then they brought their people in, and they brought them in to intermarry and to bring their gods. And so before long, everything was so mixed. There was worship of Yahweh and there were worship of the Assyrian gods and the children didn't know who they were or what, what culture they were or what religion they were. And before long, what Samaria was was this mixed up place. And so what they would do is they had some knowledge of Yahweh, but they would, they would go to the altar. So the farmer would say, I need, I need successful crops. So he'd go and pay at the altar for success. And then the, the woman says, if I don't have a child, my husband will put me away. So she'd go to the fertility altar and she'd make a sacrifice and say, oh, give me a child. And then other military, political people would go and say, make me powerful, make me strong. And they pay a sacrifice. And God says, this isn't idolatry. This is adultery. This is you in bed with the gods. You say you belong to me, but you're in bed with them. Do you not understand he's speaking to our day? Because you and I pay everything for success. We'll pay anything for our careers. We'll do anything for a family. I hear people often say these words. Even Christians say, family is everything. Oh, friends. If family is everything, then you're, you're spreading your legs at a high place. You're going to every spreading tree and saying, oh, my kids need it all. No, friends. You need Jesus and your kids need Jesus. If you're in bed with others, then Jesus has to back off. And do you know what he said to Israel? I give you the divorce. No other God has ever had to have this happen, he said. But I gave Israel a divorce because I hoped that seeing what happened to her would change little sister's mind. But instead, little sister has acted even worse. This is a powerful passage. Do you understand that any kind of idolatrous love always abuses you? Even if the person is not an abuser, the love itself abuses because it asks so much of you but it gives so little back. And what it takes is your soul. Wow. Now, this is the good news here. 
God says, I'm getting my bride back. And here's how he says it. It's so interesting. I, 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 I really would like you to capture this with me. He says that there has been this issue with his people that they have put way too much value in the mediation things. So he said, I want this kind of direct intimacy with my people. I want to be their God. I want to be their husband. I want to be their father. I want to be their friend. But rather, they're relating to a box. See, the box was pretty significant. It was called the Ark of the Covenant. And the, the box had historical significance. It had the Ten Commandments. It had manna. I mean, it was a pretty significant box. And God had put his Shekinah glory to hover over the box. But you know what the people did? Is they said, we got the box. We don't really need God. We got the box. So they said, look, we can do whatever we want to do. God's never going to let Jerusalem fall. We have the temple. Because the temple contains the box. So we'll never get defeated because we got Jerusalem and we got the temple. Now you and I look back on history and that thing's been knocked down a few times. And guess what? It's still not reconstructed. Because in this passage it said, I will never rebuild it. And they won't miss it. Because why? Because he says, I'm getting rid of all mediators. I'm getting rid of any religious mediation. I will not have my people connect to me through objects or other people. It will be me and my people. There is no mediator between God and man except the man, the Lord Jesus Christ. But why is that so? And why do we not need the box? Because we have something so much better. Instead of his manifest presence being over the ark, the manifest presence of God indwells every believer. But again, you have to access it and you have to give him access. Because his word says, be filled, be continually filled with that Holy Spirit. And many of us don't realize how awesome it is to be filled with the bridegroom's love, to be filled with the bridegroom's power, to be filled with his purpose. But when you see how he did away with the box, it makes so much sense. First and foremost, Jesus himself drank the cup of our judgment. Now, there had been a sacrificial system for a long time. And so you would take your sins, confess your sins, put them into the animal, whether it's a lamb or whatever. And that, that animal would take the guilt that you had and then you would kill the animal and the judgment on that animal would somehow, in some ways, give you some absolution from your guilt. But the problem was the animal had no, no righteousness to give to you. The animal had no jewelry for the bride. The animal had no dress to make for the bride. No veil, no crown. So all you had was kind of an emptying, but there was nothing to fill. And so Jesus came, and, and, and all of that stuff with animals had, was always theater anyway. It was all just symbolic of what was to come. Because when Jesus drank the cup, the veil between the most holy place and the world was rent in two. 
That which even the high priest was scared to go in now is open for anyone who would come in the name of the Lord because the real high priest had taken those sin and that guilt on himself so that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But that's not all. Jesus is saying here, does the bride forget her jewelry? Does the bride forget to fix her face? Does the bride forget to get perfect for the bridegroom? And, and here we get a glimpse of what Jeremiah didn't understand, but we can understand. Jesus was providing for a broken bride. Jesus was providing for the most imperfect of brides. Because, you see, before Jesus came, he was perfect. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he was perfect. He didn't need to prove that he was perfect. He was perfect. So every perfect act that he did was to put perfection in your account. Listen to what he said to his mother at the wedding. Woman, I'm not dead. And part of that is you're like, what the heck is Jesus saying there? I haven't died yet. Well, listen, think. Jesus is the one who said, I'm the bridegroom. Any religious person who knew any theology would have said, what is he? He's claiming to be the bridegroom? That's God's place. He said, woman, I have not died yet. In other words, the bridegroom was going to have to die for there to be a supper. For there to be that marriage supper of the Lamb where you'll drink a cup with him and you'll eat with him. And his death had to take place for you to be invited. But then look what he was doing all along. He goes and gets baptized. Did Jesus need to be baptized? No, he got baptized for you so that his perfect work of obeying the law would go to your account. As he healed the sick, as he obeyed his father and everything and did nothing of his own initiative whatsoever, he wasn't doing it for him. He was doing it for you. So that your jewelry was starting to be racked up. Your veil was being paid for. Your crown was being paid for. Your dress was being paid for. So that he puts to your account so that when you come out as the bride, you are spotless and you are radiant. You don't make yourself perfect. He puts his perfection to you and you are made perfect. But it's all faith. It's a receiving. It's an exchange. You see, if you don't recognize that you are a destitute bride, then you'll just make your own wedding gown. And you'll just make your own jewelry. And you'll just make your own veil. But the problem is it'll never be the veil or the gown for the bridegroom. And he has it all for you. His perfection to your account. His sacrifice to take away your old account. Nailing your old life to the tree and then giving you new life in Him. Having been crucified with Christ, we are raised with Christ. Will you stand with me? Can you hear me today in this? Look. It's hard for us to see this because you all do look very lovely this morning. But you're ugly brides. 
because it's about the corruption in your heart. You see, you can make your appearance good, but it never hides your heart. And I guarantee you, you're either faithless Israel, or you're treacherous Judah, or you're a combination of both. There are some things you're easily deceived by, and there are some things that you're deceiving others. But the one who is never deceived is the bridegroom. He's never deceived. And he says, admit your guilt. Admit your bankruptcy. Give me access. And if so, you'll realize you never need mediation again. You don't need a priest. You don't, need a, you don't have to have a religion. You don't have a church. All you need is a relationship with the bridegroom. He wants immediacy. He doesn't want someone between you and him. He wants you and you alone. That song that we've been singing, there's someone standing in the fire with us. There's a couple of lines in there that are so powerful that speak to his relationship. You'll never be alone. Whether it's fire or water, it doesn't matter. You'll never be alone. But my favorite line is, nothing stands between us. Nothing stands between us. You understand, this has always been his heart. He does not want you to pay again for what he's already paid. Repentance isn't you making up for what you've done. It's you turning from what you've done to him. You can say a million Hail Marys and a million Our Fathers and it pays for nothing. If His payment has been accepted, then God who is just will never ask for a second payment. All He asks is that you return. That you turn from where you were to Him. That you empty your aching arms and you embrace His open arms. And it's a matter of faith, not religion. Would you pray that with me? You've probably done it before like I have, but I, I, I'm sensing, <laughs> I'm like, Lord, I still feel like there's treachery in me. Lord, I feel like at times there's a faithlessness where I get deceived easily. I want to not miss this message. I want to, I want to return to you with my whole heart. Would you do that with me? Would you recognize that exchange? Would you say this with me? Lord, I receive that you drank the cup of my judgment, my punishment, and the price is paid. You will never ask a second payment for the payment you've already received. And I receive all the perfection of Jesus as my wedding dress, my jewels, my crown, my veil, everything that a bride needs to be perfect. Receive that today. Receive that He emptied you of guilt and shame, but receive that He brings His perfection and He makes His bride perfect, spotless and radiant. Nobody else can do that for you. No religion can do it for you. No other gods can do this for you. This is why He asks for exclusive claim to your heart. 
I can't make you exclusive with Him. Only you can. But I hope you'll do that today. Don't miss that. Make it exclusive. I belong to you. You belong to me. We seal these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Thanks for being here today. We'll see you next week.